from the CSI Today News Desk at the College of Staten Island. Welcome to the CSI Today Talks Podcast with your hosts, David Pizzuto and Terry Manns. The CSI Today Talks Podcast is your connection to the College of Staten Island with the newsmakers that make it happen. From world-renowned faculty and staff, dynamic students, and community leaders, stay connected to CSI with CSI Today Talks. And now, here is your host, David Pizzuto. Welcome, everybody, to CSI Today Talks, right here on CSIToday.com. And from wherever you are catching your favorite podcast, we welcome you to the College of Staten Island's official podcast where we sit down with newsmakers who make our campus the great institution that it is. I am your co-host, David Pizzuto, welcoming you in to Season 1, Episode 5 of our podcast as we get set to turn the page into the month of March. We premiere our show on the last day of February, February 28, 2022. We have a great uh, show lined up for you today. A great guest will join me in just a few moments. Dr. Grace M. Cho, Associate Professor at the College of Staten Island, but of course, distinguished author of the critically acclaimed book, Tastes Like War, will be joining me in just a few moments' time. So excited to talk to Grace. But before that, a little bit of housekeeping. As you know, CSI Today Talks brings you episodes uh, each and every week right here on CSIToday.com. And of course, from wherever you catch your favorite podcast. We remind you to please subscribe uh, to this podcast and get alerted as to when we drop episodes. Myself and our co-host Terry Mayers will look to bring you these episodes on Monday of each and every week. Terry will return next week with uh, another great conversation. I was so happy to hear his last conversation with not one but two guests on CSI Today Talks. Of course, the great Laura Moreo and Greg Brown from WSIA doing all sorts of fantastic things there. So if you didn't check out that episode, be sure to consult with our archive. All of CSI Today Talks uh, episodes are available through our archived pages as well. So make sure you hit subscribe and also please subscribe to our CSI News website at csitoday.com. There is a subscribe button there and each and every week we'll bring you a newsletter which gives you all the latest news here at the College of Staten Island and also features this podcast that you're listening to today. So whatever day of the week, whatever time of day you are listening, we are happy you are here. Our guest today, of course, the great Dr. Grace Cho, uh, Associate Professor at the College of Staten Island in Sociology, Anthropology, and Social Work, and of course, author of the critically acclaimed book, Tastes Like War, which has gotten a lot of attention, a recent winner of the Asian Pacific American Award by the ALA for nonfiction, and of course, in the running for other major awards as well. And we're so thankful that Grace joins us here today to talk about uh, her book, which centers around uh, her relationship with her mother, who did suffer from mental illness as a Korean-American who migrated to the United States when Grace was uh, a toddler and growing up in, uh, in Chehalis, Washington. So we welcome uh, Grace to the show to talk a little bit more uh, to us about this. So Grace joins us now, and, and Grace, I can say first and foremost, uh, I can count on, on one finger the amount of times I've, I've read such a critically acclaimed book, like <laughs> Tastes Like War, and then had a chance to speak one-on-one to the author. So this is a great thrill for me and a real pleasure. So uh, thank you for taking the time to speak to us today. Oh, thank you for having me on your show, and congratulations on the new podcast. 
Thank you. I, I appreciate that. So, you know, in my opening that I recorded a little earlier, I spoke a little about the success of the book, Tastes Like War, and, and the acclaim it's received, the recent uh, Asian Pacific American Award by the ALA. And I'd love to get your reaction to that honor and a lot of the other terrific reception it's garnered so far. Yeah, well, I am just amazed. I mean, I continue to be surprised <laughs> at the level of recognition that the book has gotten because you know, prior to this book, I had sort of a niche following as most academics do, you know, mm -hmm. we're not used to having such a high level of, of exposure, because when you write academic books, you know, you're really writing to a very limited audience. Mm -hmm. um, and so I published with the feminist press at CUNY, which is a small independent not for profit press. And, you know, they only print a few thousand copies at a time. So I, I didn't think that more than that, that many people would read my book. Mm. So it really came as a shock to me, you know, back in um, September when I found out that it had been longlisted for mm. a national book award. And so it just sort of, you know, raised the profile of me in the book. Um, and I'm just, you know, I'm delighted and honored and humbled. I, I, you know, just so many things, you know, so many words like that come to mind and mm. I continue to feel that way that, that, uh, you know, that so many people are, are reading the book um, who I never imagined would have access to it. Mm. Sure, yeah. sure. And yeah, it's certainly something that I want to talk a lot about, you know, having having recently finished it. And uh, but I'd love for our listeners to, you know, who perhaps haven't yet read the book uh, to learn a little bit more about you personally. Can you tell us about about your life growing up as a as a Korean American, predominantly in, in Chehalis, Washington? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was born in Busan, Korea, and I moved with my, my mom and my brother um, in 1972 to a small town in Washington State. So I was a toddler at that time, and it was my father's hometown. So my father was a white American merchant marine. And so this, you know, as far as I know, there were not any other Koreans in the town at that time when we moved. Um, there were very few people of color when I was growing up. And um, you know, I think some people in the town probably would disagree with me on this characterization, but it, it, I experienced it as very xenophobic, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, was a concept I didn't know as a child, but I felt it, mm. you know, so I felt it on the playgrounds. Um, and then I also noticed it in the ways that my mother was sometimes treated in public, you know, so sort of random, random incidents of, of anti-Asian violence you know, that we're, we're talking about now, but um, I sort of grew up with that as a norm. And it wasn't always physical violence. It was more of the, the psychological variety sure. of the, the taunting and things of that nature. Um, but it was, you know, it was a rural town. So, you know, it was in a small town, you, there's sort of a, a kind of intimacy with your neighbors that, mm -hmm. that maybe you don't get in the city. So there are, you know, there are a lot of pros and cons with that. So it, it wasn't all bad. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And yeah. I, I was, I was taken in the book by this, by this particular billboard that exists, right? Oh, and, yeah. and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not quite sure if it's on the outskirts of town or, or in town and it, it, it still exists. Does it not? Yes. With, it with still this, exists. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, it's not within what's called the city limits, but it mm -hmm. is right there. So if you're driving down, let's say you drive down I-5 from Seattle to Portland because the town is right in the middle of Seattle, uh, right, right at the halfway point between mm -hmm. Seattle and Portland, um, you'll see a billboard. It's, you know, it's double-sided, so you can see it in either direction with a picture of Uncle Sam and then the people who um, 
put the quotes up there are, you know, the people who own the farmland around mm -hmm. there, but they have uh, historically have had some affiliation with radical right wing groups. Mm. So, you know, the kinds of things in recent years that have gone up on that billboard are um, like, do we call it immigration or an invasion? Something mm, to that effect. Right, right. Um, the, some of the quotes I remember when I was growing up, like in the 1980s, there was one that said, AIDS, the wonder disease that turns fruits into vegetables. Oh, right. Yeah, I remember that. Yep. Yeah. And so that one made um, a national news, I think, mm. <laughs> um, and sort of, you know, spotlighted the town as the sort of ultra conservative, conservative, you know, radical right wing place <laughs> to live. Um, but yeah, the, the billboard is still going strong. And I know that it's even within the town, it's pretty controversial because there are some people who really, you know, align their beliefs with the kinds of things that go up there. And mm -hmm. then others who want to distance themselves sure. and think that it's yeah. really ridiculous. Yeah. 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 I could just imagine. So, so Grace, your, your parents and, and from the book, we learned that your mother especially put a real strong emphasis on your education and you excelled in academia. You first mm -hmm. uh, noticed signs of your mom's mental illness in your teens. And I wondered, you know, how much of your curiosity into her condition guided you on your current career path? How much did that curiosity mm. of learning and explaining more about her schizophrenia lead you to the pursuit of your doctorate and your decisions to mm -hmm. be a scholar, a professor, and of course, a writer? Pretty much all of it. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, when I went away to college, uh, it sort of was an eye opener in the sense that it allowed me to have some distance from the, the place I grew up and mm. also from my family. And at the same time, I was learning about all sorts of things that I never even imagined. You know, I was, ex you know, exposed to post-colonial theory, for example, and started to reconceive of my myself and my own family history in these terms. Um, and then, uh, you know, after I graduated from college, my mother's mental illness worsened. Mm -hmm. Um, and there, there was a point when she started to become suicidal. So it was at that point, you know, when I, the first time when I was in the hospital room with her and I told her that I was going to continue my education, I was going to, you know, it had always been her dream for me to go to Harvard. Mm -hmm. I said I would apply to Harvard. I did a master's there. <laughs> right. I told her I'd get a PhD. And a lot of that was really just sort of in this moment of, desperation to want to give her something mm. to feel good about. Um, but also, you know, I wanted to have the structure in which to really understand what was happening with my mom beyond the individual, mm -hmm. right? Because we tend to think of mental illness um, and things like suicidality as an individual problem or a family problem. And they're, they're often sort of um, kept hidden within the family. A lot mm. of people Think that it's too stigmatic to share that or talk about it publicly right. but it was always my goal to understand it from that broader lens and so that is what led me ultimately to graduate school um, and I wanted to study the conditions of my life and understand my family history um, and I did that through academia partly because I didn't have access to it within my own family because no right. one wanted to talk about it sure yeah. sure yeah, no, and that was going to be a follow-up question. It's it's almost like, you know, academia and, and higher learning provided you that that conduit at a time where there was really no internet. I mean, we're of the same age, you know, pretty much. Yeah. So, you know, it's, you know, people weren't talking about mental illness not like they are now very openly and very, very sharing with, with their thoughts. So, 
it, it sort of provided you with this roadmap to finding out more. Yeah, absolutely. It did. Um, and, you know, I think that, uh, you know, when I was in, in my master's program, I was introduced to the work of Bell Hooks, mm -hmm. Teaching to Transgress. And so there's, you know, since she passed away recently, um, there's a quote of hers that's been going around a lot on the internet. Um, I came to theory because I was hurting. Mm. And so, you know, I always really identified with that idea that you can try to study something or theorize about something um, as a way of understanding and managing your own pain. You know, so for me, it was never just like this heady intellectual pursuit um, and I actually think that for most scholars, there's always a personal element, even mm -hmm. if we say that it's something that's um, maybe social scientifically objective, everybody is guided by um, their own personal interests or whatever, you know, their own personal stakes. Sure. No, and I, so I think yeah. for some of us, we just make it more, more obvious that this is related to our pain. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Very, um, very poignant, very, very interesting. Um, the book is powerful. Uh, it's deeply moving, Grace. It's, it's beautiful. It's thought-provoking memoir of your relationship predominantly with your mother, uh, her struggle with mental illness and your struggle to understand it and care for her. What stood out most to me reading it is how deeply personal it is. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. and, I'm, and I'm wondering as a writer and with that process, was it difficult to uncover these memoirs and relive them, some of these moments, mm -hmm. sometimes very painful ones, putting them to paper, or was it almost therapeutic for you in some way? Did it help you understand your mother more? Well, I mean, it was, it was both of those things, mm. you know, cause I, I don't think that therapy, I, I don't think you can do anything that's therapeutic without there also being some discomfort. Sure. Yeah. Right. Um, cause that, that almost is the definition of what therapy is, is that you have to sort of get at the underlying pain. Um, and so, yeah, there were times when it was like, I, you know, I'm reliving, reliving all of these moments and particularly the moments around my mother's death. I think those were some of the most difficult moments mm. for me to write about. Um, and every time I either wrote it or even went back to read it during the editing process, it felt like it was just, it was happening again. Mm. Um, but my, my feeling about, pain is that it's not something that we're supposed to suppress um, or, you know, the goal shouldn't even be to make it go away necessarily, but to be able to, to live with it in a way that's manageable. Mm. Cause I think pain is always there and it's also not something that's necessarily bad. It could be something very productive, you know? And right. I think in, in relation to this book, I think that um, I think that the idea of grief through writing is a way of honoring the person that we've lost. Yeah, good point. How uh, how long did it take you to write the book? Where you know where do you start with this? <laughs> I know I know you've written uh, you know in the past about about some of the themes that are that are present here, but mm -hmm. you know at, at at what point do you sit down and say I'm going to do this? And then how does that how does that process mm -hmm. kind of play out? I don't think I ever thought that <laughs> that I was going to sit down and do it. It just sort of came came about organically. Mm it began when my mother died she died really suddenly and i uh, i still don't know what the cause of death was and so during that period when i was trying to deal with the grief like the really intense grief that comes right after you've lost someone all of these memories started to come flooding back 
of my mom when I was a young child, um, of her when she was really charismatic and energetic. Mm-hmm. And um, food was always in those memories. So I, right. you know, originally I was just trying to write down these memories because I thought this is amazing that I'm, you know, all of this is coming back to me and I don't want to forget it again. And so it started out with that. And then over time, I started thinking, well, you know, I, made, I want to do something with this. I want to memorialize her. And so I started just writing these memoir pieces, these little pieces. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a couple of years later, then it, I start thinking, well, I have a lot here. Maybe this could be a book. And I start, started then workshopping it as a book. And um, through the process of getting feedback from other writers, um, a lot of people said, I think there's a larger story here about your mom and her history, which initially wasn't there because I had written about some of that in my first book. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I decided to incorporate it based on the feedback that I got from other readers. So that's why, you know, in the prologue to the book, I describe it as um, as an unintended right. sequel, right. Uh, to borrow Maggie Nelson's phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so that's sort of how the book came about. Great, great. Um, the book does make, you know, the, the argument that your mother, uh, migrating to the United States, like you mentioned, having to assimilate to American culture, the loss of her roots in, in Korea, the loss of her mother, your grandmother, uh, her inability to talk openly about what she may have considered a shameful past, uh, and perhaps even the inconsistencies of treatment and medication at the time, you know, all led to her, her schizophrenia or her in, increased development of it. Uh, and it's a diagnosis that perhaps is not uncommon for for immigrants mm-hmm. and people of color hit with these specific forces. Can you explain how your research kind of led you to this and and how you saw mm-hmm. this, you know, playing out in your mom? Yeah, I mean, it started when I was 15 in 1986 when um, I first started to notice that her behavior had suddenly changed mm-hmm. and that she was exhibiting what, you know, what Western psychiatry Uh, would describe as symptoms of schizophrenia. And I was unable to get any help for her at that time. And even when I went to the community mental health care center, they, um, they told me that there was nothing that they could do for her. Um, And, you know, I think that some of that reaction came from the lack of knowledge about schizophrenia, because in the 1980s, and the 90s, especially, we lived with this under this um, discourse of schizophrenia and other mental illnesses really being a biological disease um, that that creates a chemical imbalance in the brain and then um, you know then you treat it with medication Mm -hmm. and there was no consideration of the social or of a history of trauma whatsoever and so even when i was a a child i knew that that couldn't have been all there was to it because I, i even though I didn't know that much about my mom's history, I knew that she had been a refugee during the Korean War and that she had some trauma related to that. And so it always, you know, from that young age made me interested in finding out more about it. Um, so as I started to do research into the social causes of schizophrenia, uh, I found in, so this book came out in 2016 called Our Most Troubling Madness, which I, I draw upon um, quite a bit in, in my book, the idea of the social risk factor. So that really in the last couple of decades, there's been quite a lot of research looking at social risk factors for mm-hmm. schizophrenia that shows that, well, yes, of course, there is some genetic component to it, but that's not what causes it. I mean, that, you know, it's not, you know, like a done deal 
that you're going to become schizophrenic if you have the, the genes right, that correlate DNA, with that. Yeah. It's, it's always something social that, that triggers it. Um, and so some of them are, some of the social risk factors are things that we typically associate with poor mental health outcomes, like, you know, childhood trauma, sexual abuse, poverty during childhood. Um, but then there were others that we don't really talk about that much. And one of them is immigration, mm-hmm. right? And another is being a person of color in a white neighborhood. So that's what made me reflect more upon um, my, my mom's experience in the U.S., you know, the stresses of being an immigrant in a neighborhood where there were no others of her kind or very few others of her kind as time right. went on, um, of being a person of color in a white neighborhood um, and so on. So we, we really need to think about how, how racism and the daily stress of living with that can affect somebody's mental health. And I think we also need to really um, sort of revise the narrative of immigration, because we tend to focus on the immigrant success story without right. looking at the dark side of immigrant sure. immigration. Sure. Right? Yeah. And, and, and also there's, there's kind of this, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like this, this trepidation around suggesting that perhaps the notion that the United States has something to do with that. Right. Because at, at, mm-hmm. the, at the time, you know, of the Korean war of, of having, you know, a U.S. force there, um, mm-hmm. You know, and and, you know, similar to, to your parents situation of having having situations like that where U.S. U.S. military uh, is there and, you know, ha- is bringing, you know, Korean women back uh, as mm-hmm. as as war brides, quote unquote. Um, right. You know, g- you know, heaven forbid we should talk about that in, in some circles. Right. I mean, because that's something that right. is normally suppressed. Right. And, you know, I, that, that was sort of the topic, one of the topics of my first book, mm-hmm. where I really looked at how the, the narratives that we have about the nation and also about the U.S.-Korea relationship really obscures a lot of the violence that's underpinning it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, I've given many public talks on it and there's inevitably there's somebody in the audience who stands up to object and gets very upset <laughs> sure. and calls me anti-American for saying that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so it does definitely creates a lot of discomfort for some people. And I think it's especially for, you know, for, for veterans of the Korean mm-hmm. war who mm-hmm. maybe, you know, are more invested in, in the, you know, the storyline that it was really just about benevolence right. and that there was no wrongdoing. It's, it's a hard truth to swallow. Right. Or, and and that the U.S. came in and just and saved everybody, really. Yeah, played the hero right, in every right. case. Yeah, uh, and I think that that many people are invested in that rescue right, narrative. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, and yet, Grace, you know, as the as the title of your book suggests, it's this book is also about food, and you mentioned it as well, and and how kind of it it all got started, and you know, it 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 provided. Uh, in your case, a, a real access point or an entryway for you to learn more about your mother. Um, you know, mm-hmm. your meals together were my favorite part of the book. Uh, you both mm-hmm. as a foodie and and someone who yeah. was dying to taste some of these dishes that you were preparing. But uh, <laughs> but it, but even as as someone who really identified with the relationship, it helped forge with your parent because I see similarities in in my childhood as you know, born of immigrant parents. The ethnic dishes you were cooking for your mom, you could say, brought you back to your mm-hmm. Korean roots and accessing that great divide that your mom mm-hmm. had in discussing her past. Yeah. I suppose you can't make a Korean dish now without thinking of your mom. 
How powerful yeah. did the role of food play with your relationship with your mother? How dependent was she to food for the state of her well-being? Yeah. Well, I mean, when we first moved to Chehalis, Washington, you know, I remember those early days of her feeling very isolated and um, really struggling a lot. But uh, I think things started to get better once she figured out a way to to have Korean food more regularly. So I have a chapter in the book about that, about um, how she would travel these long distances to get the ingredients to make kimchi and how important that was for her survival in this context um, in which she was so cut off from anything Korean, you know, her family, her culture, her language, um, that the food was sort of a lifeline. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't something I really understood until, you know, after she died and I started to reflect on our experiences with food. Um, and then later in her life, you know, after she had become mentally ill and had stopped cooking for herself, and then I began to cook for her, um, I noticed that over time, you know, our relationship started to change and her relationship to my cooking also started to change because initially she did not want me to do it right. because she was always so consistent in saying, um, don't cook. You should be studying instead. Mm -hmm. Cooking is a waste of time. Don't do it. Um, and so originally she sort of refused my cooking and then eventually she gave in a little bit. And at first I started to cook foods that I was interested in cooking. It was a very self-centered relationship I had mm -hmm. then to, to the food, to the cooking, because I just thought, oh, well, this, this, let me make this fun for me. And it, it never even occurred to me to ask her what she wanted. But mm -hmm. after a while, she started to tell me, uh, I want you to make me konkuksu, which was this, you know, it's an old fashioned Korean dish mm -hmm. and uh, that I had never even tasted before. Hmm. And so more and more, she started to ask me for these old fashioned Korean dishes from her childhood. And so in a way, she gave me access to this family history right. that I never thought that I was going to have access to because this was going back to my grandmother's cooking, hmm. you know, so it was sort of this glimpse into her childhood and the Korea of the past. Um, and the more I cooked these foods that she asked for, the more I saw her demeanor change whenever we were sharing a meal together, um, the more she started to sort of open up about the past. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I rarely pried because I, I knew that it was something that was difficult for her to talk about, but then she started to, you know, volunteer these memories because the food would trigger the memories. Mm -hmm. And I definitely saw an improvement in her mental health over the last couple of years of her life when we were eating this way. Yeah. No, and, and it, it kind of makes sense, you know, from a, from an outside perspective's view of how sh she wouldn't want you to to get into the cooking because of of um, n you know her apprehension of of having you relive her past, so mm -hmm, to speak, and yeah. kind of uh, set your own set your own chapter. But of course, as that as that guard comes down a little bit, you can you, you can kind of see that transition happen, and it's a, it's a, it's beautiful to watch and to read. Um, so it was, Thank it's, you. yeah, for sure. Um, so you described Tastes Like War, uh, you know, just like you mentioned previously as an unintended sequel, because it wasn't the first time you've written about the transgenerational haunting that occurs in mm -hmm. Korean women who suffer through the Korean War, uh, often as sex workers or bar girls to the American military, trying to then assimilate to be Western princesses in the United States. Is that still unfolding for you? Where where are you personally in your studies to learn more about that? And are you still researching and investigating the role that those factors might have on mental illness? 
Yeah, so I mean, I'm not I'm not actively researching that anymore, but mm-hmm. I try to sort of keep up with what is currently happening in Korea. You know, um, many times when I've spoken about this topic, people think I'm talking about something historical that just goes back to World War II and the Korean War. Um, but for your listeners who are not familiar with this phenomenon, the, the, the South Korean government created a state-sanctioned system of prostitution for U.S. troops. Mm-hmm. Um you know, like the roots of it go back to 1945, but they really established it in the 1960s and it continues to this day. But the difference is that nowadays, you know, it's very rare for a Korean woman to enter that system because of the way in which the country has gotten wealthier and more powerful. Mm-hmm. Now they recruit foreign women. Mm-hmm. So now you can go to these establishments around the U.S. bases and you'll see signs to recruit entertainment hostesses on foreign visas. And so they draw them from the Philippines and Southeast Asia and Russia and, you know, other, other country, poorer countries mm. around, uh, around South Korea. Um, so, yeah, I, I want to sort of keep up to date with that. But as far as this idea of transgenerational haunting, um, that's a psychoanalytic idea mm-hmm. that the secrets of one generation live in the unconscious of the next generation and haunt them. Mm. And so that idea is still very powerful in my mind and in my work, because there are, you know, there are a lot of family secrets, not just in my family, but I think generationally Mm. that sort of affects, uh, you know, the children of these diasporas. And, and, you know, if you look at what other Korean American writers have been working on the last few years, you see that theme come up again of wanting to break the silence and wanting to be more open about things that are stigmatized. Hmm. Very, very interesting. And uh, certainly something that was uncovered for me uh, in in reading Mm -hmm. your book, a lot of these, you know, theories and and even some of the history, especially surrounding the Korean War, were things that I truly did not know. And so Mm -hmm. it's eye opening and fascinating and something that I will be uh, kind of following up on as well. So it's it's definitely, uh, you know, the uh, the book has served that purpose as well to really be an eye opener oh, for that for yeah. for that. Yeah. Um, so I know we only have time for another question or two, Grace. But you know, for you personally, uh, how have the books helped you heal, or or, or have they? You know, has has mm-hmm. writing the books helped you come to terms with your mother's loss? Yeah, I mean, you know, as I was saying before, I I guess I don't think of. I don't think of healing so much as not being mm-hmm. in pain, but I think that it, it definitely has made me more comfortable with that pain and it has allowed me to rethink it as something that's, that's productive, mm-hmm. right. As a way of continuing to honor the dead or the, the lost loved ones. And, you know, I mean, I think one interesting outcome of the, the books, I guess, wider exposure is that, it's really connected me to other people who have had similar experiences because so many people have reached out to me to say either, Oh, you know, my mother also had schizophrenia or someone else in my family had schizophrenia and were stigmatized and it was this big secret or, you know, my mother also had been a sex worker. Um, And so I guess I'm, it, it really has allowed me to sort of broaden this feeling of pain to feel that with, you know, a large group of people out there who I may never meet, but to know that I'm connected in this way. Um, and so I guess I want to really suggest that it's important to be able to feel not just your own pain, but the pain of others, because that's mm-hmm. really the root of what compassion is. Sure, sure. 
you know, as I, as I sit here in, in my office at the College of Staten Island, I realize, Grace, that uh, we have, we've hardly talked about the College of Staten Island and your, mm-hmm. and your place on it. But uh, I was interested in learning more about, about your roles here specifically on campus. I know you're an associate mm-hmm. professor working within sociology, anthropology, and social work. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing in the classroom uh, this semester and beyond and perhaps yeah. some other projects you're working on? Yeah, so um, the last, I guess, probably like the last 10 or 12 years or so, I've been involved in curriculum development, and I developed a couple of classes related to food. Mm. So, you know, again, all of my personal history and my family history comes into the classroom as well. Um, So I teach one class called Food, Self, and Society, which looks at the meaning of food for, for cultures, for various cultures. Um, and that draws a lot of students. It's mm. a very popular course. And then at the end of that course, we study the some of the problems associated with the industrialized food system and uh, alternatives to it. And that turned out to be something that students really wanted to know more about because they kept asking for independent studies on that topic. So I developed then a follow-up class on that. Um, so I'm teaching t- two sections of that, uh, you know, an undergrad and a graduate course this semester. Um, and the, the other course that I developed was, uh, is called the sociology of mental illness, hmm. which is, it's, uh, an elective for both the disability studies minor and for critical criminology and social justice, which is a new minor and concentration within sociology and anthropology. And so there we, we look at how, um, mental illness is treated in the United States and how it's often criminalized. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I love teaching because what I find with the students is that they're able to look at the material in these courses and understand how it's relevant to their lives. And, you know, I know that not every, not every class is going to do that, but, um, you know, they really apply it in a way that allows them to engage in it fully. Hmm. And so the the project of teaching these courses has been pretty fulfilling to me. Yeah, I would imagine that sounds, that sounds terrific. And uh, definitely, um, you know, expanding the reach of, of, you know, your own personal um, experiences and now putting them into the classroom is just tremendous. So um, Mm -hmm definitely looking forward to uh, uh to that and and also are you are you continuing to write do you have any other projects that that, uh, that you're working on <laughs> i my i've never been good at writing during the academic year because <laughs> i put i put a lot of time into teaching I would imagine, but also yeah. you know this year because of taste like war pretty much all of my days off from teaching are filled with interviews and events and things like that right sure uh so i you know i'm hoping to get back into it in the summer um, I ha- I always have ideas. They they don't always go anywhere because sometimes the moment has passed once I have a moment mm. to write. But um, yeah, but you know, like the the kinds of things that I am interested in exploring more are the ones. Some of the topics that we've talked about. I, I really want to think deeply about grief and the role, mm. the productive role that grief can play in our society and culture. Um, and I'm also interested in thinking more about the criminalization and incarceration of people with mental illness. Mm. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, so you've alluded to this, but um, you know, the book is tastes like war and it's, it's wonderful. And, you know, I know how grateful you are for all the reception it's received all told grace. How, how proud are you, the story it tells and the, and the message it sends. 
Oh, it's it's funny. I feel like I should be humble and not talk about how proud I am. But you know, for the most part, yes, I'm 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 very proud of it because it did take me a long time to write the book. It, I put a ton of emotional labor into the book, a lot of myself, mm. and I feel like um, it's it's also my mom's accomplishment right. because I even though she had passed away after I started writing it. I really felt her presence through much of it. And, you know, towards the end of her life, she was really supportive of my, my first book. Um, and so I feel like, I feel like I've sort of internalized the pride that she would have uh, about the, you know, the accolades that it's gotten, but um, you know, and I think that it's just having heard from so many people who said that the book was meaningful to them. Um, it does make me feel like I accomplished what I had set out. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, Grace, this has been such a wonderful experience uh, talking to you, learning more uh, about the person behind the book. Uh, I'm truly excited for you and the reception that Tastes Like War has gotten. And I do hope as we move back to in-person learning here and, and being on campus more to see you on our campus and, you know, uh, to catch up again soon. And, and, and I do mean it when I say that some of, some of those recipes that you have in there were pretty <laughs> mouthwatering. So anytime you feel so inclined, I'm in 1A and we can, you know, we, <laughs> you, uh, you could share those recipes. But, but no, I mean it. Uh, it. It was just a fantastic read. And, uh, and, and I do look forward to catching up to you, uh, you know, in person on campus and, and saying hello at some point. Thank you so much, David. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you for doing this and being a part of this experience. That was Grace Cho, Associate Professor at the College of Staten Island and author of the book, Tastes Like War. We thank Grace uh, for imparting so much knowledge to us today and giving us a lot more insight uh, into the book, Tastes Like War. Uh, this was a, another terrific conversation that we've been having for you here on CSI Today Talks. We hope that you've enjoyed it. And so we will see you next week. Uh, Terry Mayers will usher in the month of March with a great conversation you will not want to miss. That's next Monday with Terry Mayers. Uh, until then, want to wish you the very best of weeks. I am your co-host, David Pizzuto. We thank Grace Cho for being our guest. And we'll see you next week on CSI Today Talks. Thank you for listening to this edition of the CSI Today Talks podcast. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to get alerted for brand new episodes and to listen on demand to your favorites. Be sure to check us out at www.csitoday.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.